Good morning, everybody. In the uh, spirit of Valentine's week, why don't you pull somebody close and say, ain't God good? John Andrew gave me that. <laughs> Sometimes I think to myself, you know, I get to stand up there and I, I'm endued with some measure of power. Like, I could get people to probably do some pretty weird stuff. Uh, you know, I mean, so I'm going to try to conjure up some better things to get you guys to do. It's, it's good to see you this morning. We're grateful that you're here. We're going to baptize one or two here at the end of the service, so we're grateful for that. And uh, I just want to go ahead and move right on into the Word. They've done an excellent job, these fellas, at giving you the announcements, so my duty left is just to bring the Word to you. And I'm going to do a little standalone message here, breaking from that uh, brutal sermon series that we came out of called The Pursuit. Uh, that the Lord gave us and blessed us with. And I'm just going to work through 1 Corinthians 13 this morning and speak to you on the topic of love never fails. Love never fails. This should be really good, and I'll be honest with you, I like to revisit uh, 1 Corinthians 13 quite often for my own personal sake because sometimes love, and Jesus even said, because in the last days, Wickedness shall abound, the love of many will wax cold or grow cold. And sometimes I notice that my love often has the tendency in this world to dry up and grow a little cold, and it needs to be refreshed and renewed by the Spirit of God, and I need to come into the love of God and remember exactly who it is that God's called me to be. And so Paul gives a little explanation about love to the Corinthian church, and here's what he says in, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 through 7. He said, now, now he has given a, a, a broad explanation of the gifts of the Spirit, which he says the Corinthian church has excelled in. And he even said, I want to pray for you that you, don't, you come behind in no gift until the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they were seeing miracles, and people were speaking in tongues, and all kinds of wonderful manifestations were happening in the church. But then he says this right in the middle of that. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels... But have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It, it, it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Let's pray over this together. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you for your presence that's here in our midst. God, just for the opportunity to, to gather and worship and to focus our hearts and our minds on you, Lord God, the one that loves us more than we could ever imagine. And, and, and Lord, we come to you with so many burdens, with so many requests. But Lord Jesus, just like Matt said, what we want more than anything is you. And we know that when we come to you, first and foremost, God, we receive your love, and that love is wrapped in the truth of your word that comes to transform us. And so, Jesus, this morning, we ask for your presence. We ask for your spirit, God. We, we bind the voice of the flesh, and we bind the voice of the enemy this morning. And we pray that your word would come alive in our hearts, Lord God, and you would change us by it so that we could live according to your will for our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 
So Paul writes this to the Corinthian church, and I don't know if you know much about the Corinthian church or if you've read the book of 1 Corinthians, but man, they were a very interesting group of people. And they were a church that was born in a culture and a context that had a lot of false idol worship. And, you know, they would go in and they were trying to, like, make sure that people didn't get mixed up with the culture because in that culture it was quite popular to go worship certain goddesses and go in and have sex with a temple prostitute and not think too much about it. That was just like a a daily kind of a thing. On the weekend, you know, you're going to go get hammered and go in and see a temple prostitute as an act of worship. And he's like, no, no, no. The Christian church is a little bit different than that, fellas. We're going to come out of that and we're going to live a little bit differently than that because Jesus has saved us and redeemed us. So he has to, he has to lay out for them and spell it out for them, you know, what is, what is godly behavior and what's ungodly behavior. And he lays things out like them. But even the Corinthian church, they had a lot of power because they were spiritual people and they were getting in contact with the Holy Spirit and the power of God was manifesting in their midst. They were seeing miracles and prophecy was taking place and God was moving in their church services. But the problem is their character did not often back up the move of God that was happening in their midst. And this is possible that it can happen in a church. And this is why it's important that you don't, we don't ever actually judge how well we're doing based on externally how much we think God is moving in the church. Amen. Now, now, honestly, I want God to move more than anybody, man. I pray, I fast, I'm seeking God, I'm saying, God, I want an outpouring of the Spirit. But, but you know, people can judge and say, well, our church is doing well, we're growing. Our church is doing well, we're baptizing people. Our, our church is doing well, we, we can't hardly fit everybody in the door. But all of those external indicators, Paul is saying, you know what, you can have a bigger ch- growing church, you can speak in tongues, you can even have miracles on occasion. People can be getting healed. You can have prophets revealing the mystery of people's hearts but if you do not have love growing and cultivating in the church you're just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal and ultimately you're just religious aggravating activity I mean that's what he says and so, so he's saying, yeah, yeah, all these things are important. I tell our church all the time, I'm like, you know what? You said, some people say, well, see, that's why we don't even need spiritual gifts. Well, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm not going to go that far. I never throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know what I'm saying? So I always tell our church, like, if you're walking down the road and you see a $5 bill and a $100 bill, which one are you picking up? You're picking both up, bless God. You're not going to leave a 5 there just because you picked up a 100 I mean, I want, I, want the, I want the $5 bill of the power of God and prophetic power and, 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 and God healing. I want the power of God here. But see, that, that's the $5 bill. And what that has to be undergirded with is the $100 bill of love itself. He says, no matter what you got going on in the church, if it is not motivated by, fueled by, and ultimately for the purpose of expanding love, you're just a noisy gong, you're a clanging cymbal, you're a bunch of religious activity, and it's not actually bringing the transformation in our world that you're supposed to be demonstrating. And so discipleship, when we talk about discipleship, even as we move along in small groups, we're going to talk about different things. But discipleship at, at its core is about becoming an outrageous lover as the Bible defines it. Not an outrageous lover as the culture defines it, but an outrageous lover as Scripture itself defines it. And Jesus was the kind of lover who attracted, people were attracted to this kind of love. Like, for example, in Jesus' time, literally the Bible accuses him of being like a bad dude because he ate with tax collectors and sinners. 
Now, understand that Jesus didn't necessarily, he wasn't partying with tax collectors and sinners, but he was the kind of person that would walk up to a person on the outside, engage in conversation with them, and have contact with them where they felt so valued and, so, and, 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 and worth was poured out on them to the degree that their heart was unlocked. And even though they knew this was a holy man, a righteous man, a man with holier standards than even the Pharisee, yet somehow he unlocked something in their heart and they felt loved, they felt valued, they felt worth for themselves. And so they would come in and sit with this man and he was attractive to them because of that. Now prostitutes, tax collectors, they got to know Jesus and when they got to know Jesus because he loved them so much, their heart was laid bare before them and they would come to a place of repentance. See, Jesus never loved any of these prostitutes, tax collectors or sinners so much that he said, hey, you guys stay in your sin because that's not love as the Bible defines it, is it? But he loved them so much that he let them know about their intrinsic value and worth even while they were in their sin that God loved them enough to come and get them. So he demonstrated that and he, and he spoke to them in such a way where they said, you know what, this man represents a life that I can live. This man represents a life that, that, that I want him, that I, that I desire. But see, he didn't just tell them to work harder. He got into their hearts and transformed who they were. He sees the people how they can actually be in him. Now, the Pharisees of the day, people didn't much like the Pharisees because they tended to be a little bit different and they didn't reveal the worth that people had in God. They were religious people, they were critical, they were divisive, they were condemning, and they had a very controlling spirit. And the people came in and said, man, these people, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want any part of that. I don't, even though they, they, they kept all the laws and they were rigid about doing this, but when they came in, see, there was an us and them mentality. You don't live it like I live it. You don't, you don't believe like I believe. And so all of a sudden they were condemning, they were critical, and they were controlling. And they said, man, we don't want any part of that. But see, Jesus shows up on the scene and he reveals a love that is different. But see, when, when we talk about this, when, when he's laying out love is this, he's defining for us what love looks like, what it is. And you could actually put Jesus in the place of this. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind, right? He is the full representation of love. But when we lay this out, we got to look at a few things. And I'm, I'm literally just going verse by verse through this. But number one, I want to say this before we actually get into what Scripture says. Love is not a feeling. And this is important because almost exclusively our culture today speaks about love in regards to a feeling. How you feel what do you think? How do you feel about it? And what you feel then is love, and that is how it's defined. Whatever you feel, you should, you should pursue that desire. But see, love is not a feeling, and I understand this to some degree. I mean, how many of y'all, like, people think sometimes that love is almost like, you know, something that you can fall in and out of. Like it's, like it's a rash. <laughs> or, 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 or a goose bump or something that just, you know, that, that pops up. It's a feeling. And I get it. You know, I, I've told you all the story before about how, you know, I, I'm trying to live my life and, 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 and try, to, try to serve Jesus. And I, I started dating Andrea, and we were sitting in the vehicle one time. And, you know, I, back then I, I, was, I was trying to put walls and boundaries up around my life to maintain purity before God. I wasn't about to do nothing, you know what I'm saying? And one day I got my hand sitting there. She reaches over, makes the first move, touches my pinky finger, and I felt electric. Just <laughs> the feeling. Woo! The feeling of love overwhelmed me. I said, I got to marry this girl. 
No, you know, and, and if you've been married for any sort of time, you recognize now that that same touch, that initial touch that you got does not actually produce the same feelings that it did the first time. Can somebody amen me on this Valentine's week? Now, the women wish that it still produced that same feeling, you know what I'm saying? Like, but, but, but we know you gotta, you, there, there comes a point where the chemicals wear off. And the feeling wears off. And true biblical love becomes something far more than a feeling. Far more. This is, why, this is why marriages fail so often and relationships fail so often. Because we're running on emotion and we're running on love and we're running on how we feel rather than what the Bible teaches us is actually love that has absolutely nothing to do with a feeling whatsoever. Feelings are a reaction in your brain. You realize that emotions are a reaction in your brain. I could walk up to somebody in this room this morning and say, you know what, I think you're dumb and ugly. I wouldn't. <laughs> I hope not anyway. But if, if I said that to one person, they'd probably laugh at me. You know, I said that to John Andrew Becknell, he'd just laugh at me back there. He wouldn't care. would not bother him a bit. But there's many of you, if I came up and said that to you, it would destroy your day, your week, You'd start to wonder if God even loves you. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, and all of a sudden, because, because in your mind, see, the feelings are a chemical reaction in your brain. Emotions come from thought patterns that we've, that we've uh, embraced in our mind and the world has programmed us. This is why the Bible says that we are actually transformed by the renewing of our mind. See, my, my, my feelings... How you feel doesn't tell me anything really about whether or not God loves you. It just tells me about how you think and how you feel. God's love for you never changes. The reality of God's word and, and his truth never changes. And his love for you is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he would go to you, he would go to the cross again for you over and over and over and over again because he loves you that much. But some days you don't feel loved by God. Why? Well, because you've allowed the world to program your mind and your feelings to program your mind and hurts from the past to program your mind and rejection and abandonment to program your mind. And now you've got a narrative playing over and over in your mind. So you start to interpret how people speak to you and how things happen in your life through those thought processes. And Jesus is saying, God, the word of God says that you've got to tra be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And first and foremost, the renewing of our mind is to come into an understanding of how much God loves us in Jesus Christ. When you're rooted and you're grounded in that love that if the world hates me and rejects me but Christ loves me I don't need another thing because you start to live from that reality but see that that's the ticket to our freedom because feelings are not a good guide to the truth I tell you that right now so what but if I get in the word of God and I know who God says I am how God loves me and the truth that God has told me to, to live out even if look here, here there, there are temptations that I have and feelings that I have that often I want to fulfill but God's word says no clay that's not my design for your life so what do I do at that point do I go with my feelings or do I do go with what God's word says and the scripture says if I renew my mind and come into agreement with what God's word says there's freedom in that there's freedom in that, and then all of a sudden, guess what happens? My feelings start to align with the Word of God. And then I go into the prayer closet, and I know God loves me in my heart. It's settled in my mind, and all of a sudden, I begin to sense that reality in my spirit. Because I'm renewing my mind to it, and it's, it's becoming a reality. That, that's the ticket to freedom. And here, here's another thing. Luke 6, Jesus said this about love. He said, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. 
Is that not one of the most difficult verses of Scripture you've ever heard? I mean, it really is. We, we say it flippantly as, as, as churchgoers and, and, and Christians. But here's the thing. Part of the reason people are your enemies, get this, is because you feel bad about them. Amen. That's the whole point of somebody being an enemy. You don't like them. If you think about them, it triggers all these negative emotions. You don't like them. Why? Because they've hurt you. They don't like you. They've said something to you that's not good. And so you've got enemies in your heart. And he's saying, so it cannot be about feelings. It has to be a conscious decision and a choice that you make. Amen. If I'm going to love my enemies, it's not because I feel good about them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be my enemies. Do you think that the Apostle Paul, Jesus himself, and, the, uh, and Peter, while they were crucifying his wife and crucifying him upside down, said, I feel good about what you guys are doing here? <laughs> no, no, no. He felt quite terrible about what was going on around him, but he chose to love them. He chose to forgive them as he sacrificed his own life, and this is what Jesus did. Now, this is review for a lot of you, but you know in the Greek language that there's four words for love C.S. Lewis actually wrote a book called Four Loves. It's a great book. Um, storge, though, is, is a Greek word for love. And this is like looking at something. I love that T-shirt. You know, we can say love about all kinds of things. I told you the story about how when we got married, Andrea, Andrea said she loved Kraft American singles, which is processed cheese. She looks over at me. She said, I love you, babe. We put on the same level as processed Kraft American singles. Like I've told you that story before, but see, you get that, that's, that's how you got to understand that reality because we can talk about loving God and loving Marlboro Lights, literally. So we have a weak language in that sense, but the Greek develops it a little bit. So storge is like, I, I like this thing. I, I, have, I have an affection for it. I, I love your T-shirt, that kind of thing. That's what storge is. Phileo is not looking at something, but it's looking with someone because it's a friendship kind of love. Somebody that you invite into your life that you, love, you like to spend time with, and you have a friendship with them, and you like to have them around. You like to have conversation with them. Eros is, is, is a Greek word for love, but this is the kind that... that people in our culture like to bring up this is the romantic this is valentine's day love right here this is not looking at something or looking with someone this is looking into someone looking into someone and being intimate with them it's a sensual erotic romantic kind of love and and actually this kind of love is important because it it, it helps in marriage because when People consummate the marriage, it actually causes right, a physiological change in your body where oxytocin is released and you are now chemically bound to that person. This is why in the scripture it talks about, hey, don't, don't, you know, don't sleep with a prostitute or another woman because do you not know that those two become one flesh? There's a chemical reaction that takes place there. Now, now, don't get me wrong. If you've been in a position in your life where you've not been uh, celibate your entire life or whatever, God is able to break soul ties so that you can give your full self to a particular person because he's a God of redemption. But you have to understand the power behind that. You have to understand the power behind that. And then lastly is, is the type of love that is actually listed in 1 Corinthians 13 is a very specific type of love. Some Greek scholars even argue that Paul was, might have even created this word, and it's agape, and it's self-sacrificial, self-giving, other-oriented love. And this is not just looking at something or seeing with someone or seeing into someone. This is now seeing a person as God sees them with intrinsic value and worth that goes beyond who they currently are, what they're currently doing, how bad they aggravate you, or even how evil they may currently be. Yeah. 
It goes back deep into the recesses of who God designed them to be with intention and this self-sacrificial, self-giving, other-oriented love. And number two, see, love then, according to agape, is a commitment to ascribe worth to another at a cost to oneself. It's a commitment to ascribe worth to another at a cost to oneself. It's got nothing to do with the outward merits of this person. It's something you choose to do to this person. And here's, here's the beauty of it. When Jesus looked at you, you didn't have any outward merit. You hadn't deserved any of his love. You hadn't deserved any of his grace, any of his mercy. But he made a choice to ascribe worth to you and value to you at a cost to himself. The Bible says that God demonstrates his love to us in this, that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He did not sit back and say, you know what? I'm going to wait till they get a few things right. And then after they get a few things right, then I'll come down and die for them. No, he said when they were in the deep recesses of their darkness incapable of doing anything right, hating me and rejecting me, yet I loved them so much that I came and was willing to give my own life to ascribe worth and value to them at the cost of my own life. So love is when you say, you know what, I ain't going to get a thing out of this. And this person may not even, they may not even appreciate it. They may not even like it. They may not even receive it. But yet I'm going to ascribe worth and value to them because I love them. This is what love truly is. And he demonstrated that to us on the cross and he says this kind of love is patient and here's the thing I, I don't think when Paul says this that he's saying you need to try harder to duplicate how many of you you've tried harder to be patient can I tell you that none of these things can be produced in your life by trying harder these things love is a fruit of the spirit it comes by having intimate union with the one who is love it comes by abiding in Christ and developing a relationship with him and the Holy Spirit pours this love out in your heart and you can cultivate it like a beautiful apple tree you know what I'm saying you got to go out and pull some weeds back out of your heart some bitterness back out of your heart and you got to work on that daily and water that with the word of God and make sure that you're cultivating that love in your own heart and paying attention to what's going on in your own heart but if you're cultivating love you're actually cultivating patience in your life and I know this is difficult for many of us how many how many of you are doing well on patience you're doing good some of us get madder than fire at God when he ain't done something in a week and a half of prayer nobody amen to me this morning we've been praying well, I've been praying one week well I mean you can be a little bit more patient wait this thing out it literally means to suffer long what what prevents us from being patient though what prevents us from being patient patience is uh this greek where i'm giving y'all some some word studies this morning but patience is this greek word macrothymia and what it means is it, it's literally a a specific it's a resistance to a specific kind of anger it's saying i'm slow to anger or i'm slow to be enraged it's not that I don't get angry, but I'm, I'm slow to anger. This is what patience truly is. And there's a reason for this because when you have three words for anger in the Bible, one of them is orge. And orge is this word that basically means strong feeling of displeasure aroused by wrong. So this is just your standard kind of anger. Do you know that the Bible actually teaches that Jesus got angry? It says he got angry one time in Scripture. Now, we can, we can guess 
that he got, got, maybe got angry more than once. I'm going to say that he definitely did. I, I don't know. But it only actually says he was angry one time, and that was whenever he comes into the temple and the religious leaders are watching a man with a withered hand come before Jesus, and they stood back to see whether or not he would heal the man with a withered hand in order to judge him and condemn him and say, you can't do that on the Sabbath. And Jesus knew their hearts, and he was angry because of it. Why? He was angry because they were, more, they were more interested in nitpicking religious rituals and, and, and right and wrong and how they should obey the temple laws and all this stuff rather than the intrinsic value and worth of a human being. And when, they, when he saw that they elevated their religious practices above the intrinsic value and worth of a human being, he got angry in his heart. And he said, what's, what's better? He says, how many of you have an ox in a ditch you ain't going to go out and let it out on the Sabbath? And he says, this is a human being made in the image of God. Ought not they be healed on the Sabbath because God loves them so much? And he had anger. So do you know that it's okay to be angry about some things? It's okay to be angry about some things, especially when it cuts at love. And when we talk about the wrath of God that's coming upon the world, do you know why the wrath of God is coming upon the world? It's coming and it's aimed at everything that seeks to destroy the true love of God in our world. And when you live in wickedness, and our world lives in wickedness, and all of this darkness and depravity, what is that is doing is undercutting the true love of God in our world. And he aims that at anything that, is, that seeks to destroy love in our lives. So here's the problem, though. Look at this. Because there's another word for anger. That's just basic anger is orge, but then, then it moves to another word, paraorgismos. And this is that type of anger that you have, but then you submerge it or you push it down under, and it slowly starts to build up. And often the translators of the Bible will translate like this bitterness and bitterness the bible says springs up as a root and it defiles many anger that is submerged and pressed down becomes bitterness in your heart and then you start to allow it to affect other relationships and it starts to spread among other people how many of y'all have seen this happen in your lives or in the lives of others this bitterness starts to spread because you had anger that because you're supposed to be a good Christian, you pushed it down, you shoved it down, but you allowed it to manifest into bitterness. And then all of a sudden that began to spread and be defiled. And in the Corinthian church it happened and it caused division, it caused gossip, it caused backbiting, it caused relationships spreading apart. And you see all of these things happening. And then the last one, which is more like macrothymia or patience, is thymos. And this is explosive anger or rage. And this is a work of the flesh. But this is why Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, he says, you can be angry or gay. He says, be angry and do not sin. You can be angry but still refrain from sinning. But anger often moves you into a place of sinning. Then he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, but the word here is paraorgismos, and give no opportunity to the devil. What he's saying is, it can be appropriate to be angry when somebody is devaluing a human life. But I'm going to be honest with you. Most of the times that you get, if you evaluated what you got angry at this week, was it because somebody was devaluing a human life, or was it because somebody just aggravated you and your precious time and your precious self? Amen, Amen right? Y'all good this morning? That's the reality, right? We're not so much on Jesus' level most of the time when it comes to our anger. We get angry over goofy stuff. He got over angry over things that mattered. He got angry over things that mattered. But the devil preys on angry hearts. And what he says is, he says, don't be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your perogismos. He's saying, be angry, don't sin. And don't push it down at nighttime and sleep on it in the way where you're just shoving it down and saying, okay, I'm not going, whatever. 
And bitterness creeps into your heart, and then you start to see it relationally because what happens? You're angry at that person. You've not dealt with it. You've not truly forgiven them. And that anger that you submerge now is sitting down in there. And as a Christian, you say the right things. Oh, I've forgiven them. I just know how they are. <laughs> Amen. You know what that's called? In the Greek, it's called perorgismos, my friend. <laughs> you got a bad case of perorgismos going on. You got a bad case of bitterness that can spring up and defile many. And the devil, he says, don't give an opportunity to the devil. This is what the devil wants more than anything. He wants the people of God who are called to be known by their love and forgiveness for one another to elevate other things as more important and their own self as more important and then somehow understand that a God who has freely forgiven us of all of the junk that we've done but we're unable to forgive other people of petty things and then he divides us into 10,000 denominations and we talk bad about gossip about and backbite one another and then say, well, I just know how they are. Well, let me tell you something else. Jesus knows how you are. And he forgave you anyway. And if you're becoming a person of love, he has to work this into your heart. And I've come to understand at this point in my life, as hard as it is, God actually gives me opportunities where people do me wrong and hurt me so that I can forgive them and grow in love. He's more interested in me growing in love than he is me getting my own way and people doing what I think is right. And so this is what God is constantly moving us into, but we end up giving an opportunity to the devil. And I guarantee you, there's people in here right now, you have given the devil all kinds of precious opportunities to bring division, to bring hatred in your heart, to bring gossip, to bring backbiting and unforgiveness and bitterness that is actually controlling your spiritual life. I've seen it happen too many times. Too many times. I've had a lot of people hurt me in my life. And I'll be honest with you, the people who have hurt me most, get this, are spiritual leaders. Now, I've been in the spiritual leader circle, though. You know, those are the people that I'm surrounded by because I am one. The people who've hurt me most are spiritual leaders. I know people in my life that I have hurt. I've hurt people to a degree where they, now, you know, we've worked through it. I've apologized and stuff like that, but, but there have been times even when I've preached that, I, that I've hurt people profoundly. And I've had to have conversations with people about that and try because I'm not perfect, but, but at the end of the day, I have these people, but I've come to the place where, you know what, that's, that's fine. That's fine. I've got to learn how to forgive them and love them and do good to them anyway and pray for them. I've got to pray for them. I've got to step into that place. Because I want you to consider how patient God is with you. How patient has God been with you? Honestly, think about that. <laughs> Dude should have zapped me a long time ago. But we're impatient with people, I'll tell you why. We encounter a reality that we find unacceptable. It's unacceptable. We're made for love. We're made to love God. But the problem is we're broken lovers. And you know what we love way more than God oftentimes? Ourselves. And rather than denying myself, what I want is everything to work out for me and myself. And I don't want any inconveniences. And when you inconvenience me and you inconvenience my time and my resources and my stuff, then I start to get a little bit impatient with you and I start to get a little bit angry because I see a reality that I find unacceptable because you're not doing what I want, when I want it, how I want it. And that's when impatience creeps in and we see that it erodes love in our hearts so the question is what am i loving so much right now that is making me respond this way to, to people what is it that you love so much right now that's making you respond this way to people is it you're loving yourself your time your plans your convenience 
more than your wife, your children. You know, I, I was a holy man. I tell people this all the time. I was a holy man until I got married. And it's not, it's not Andrea's fault. She makes me a better person. The problem is, is when you get to live your life and choose what you want to do and make your own decisions, and then you get married, and then you have a kid, and then you get a congregation, and all of a sudden people start placing demands on your life and asking you to do something. You know what you want to say in your selfish, self-centered life is, leave me alone, I want to do what I want to do. Anybody amen me? And what happens is God calls you into places like, no, that's not what life is about. Life is about dying to yourself so you can serve others and love others and it's no longer centered around you. And this is a difficult pill to swallow, especially on Valentine's Day, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) This ain't about me anymore. But see, this is why love begins at the cross because it begins by denying self and laying down our lives for other, others. And that is the greatest demonstration of love. Jesus dying on the cross, and he calls us to die to ourselves and to give our lives for other people around us. And when we realize that, we choose to respond to people differently than being angry with them, and we make a choice to respond with kindness because, number four, it says love is kind. And here's the thing, true kindness recognizes the infinite worth of another human being and simply chooses to bless that person or group of people in some way with no strings attached, no motive, just simple kindness. Kindness, here's here's my definition for kindness. Undeserved blessing that causes someone to realize they're valuable. That's what I believe kindness is. It's an undeserved blessing that causes someone to realize they're valuable. And this is what's demonstrated to us. The Bible says that every single, Titus 3, it says it. It says that we were all once foolish, disobedient, and deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy he saved us. When that kindness appeared while we were living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, foolish, disobedient, deceived, the kindness of God shows up, gives us an undeserved blessing that lets us know we're valuable to God, and it breaks our heart, and we say, Lord, please change me. Make me something different. I see that this love is the way of life, and this is the kindness that Jesus comes to show. Number five, it says that this love doesn't only act in kindness toward people, but it goes on to develop it, and it says that love does not envy or boast. And the fundamental attitude of an envious person is directly opposed to love. See, to love is to seek others' good. Now, I want you to listen to this. Put that up there for them to to read. To love is to seek others' good and rejoice when they have it. To envy is to desire the destruction of others' good and sorrow over their having it. You know, one of the strongholds, I think, in the southeastern Kentucky community is envy. Like, it's like, it's like people really don't want others to do well. I think even in the church community, it's almost like churches don't necessarily always want other churches to do well. Now, there's some people in here that, that, that do. I got my brother, Scotty Jewel. He comes in here all the time. He got another church in this place. I don't know if he's here this morning. But that man, from the day I met him, he wanted me to do well. He's, he's always wanted, he's, he's always encouraged me. He's a true man of God. But do you know that I've met people in our community that they don't want me to do that well? They'd appreciate, they would, they're kind of secretly hoping, man, I hope that doesn't go well. Sure hope City of Hope implodes. But why in God's name would we ever want anything to implode like that? 
How could we celebrate as people of God? Like when we hear scandals of these mega churches and, and their failings and their faults, we should weep for our brothers and sisters. We shouldn't sit back in judgmental criticism and say, well, see, their doctrine was all wrong in the first place. Well, that's not love, my friends. Your doctrine you're going to find out whenever you stand before judgment was wrong in the first place and a lot of times as well. You're going to discover that. You will discover it one day in judgment. You are not perfect and you don't know what is right in everything. You're wrong. And even when you think you're right and somebody else is wrong, you're wrong even if you are right. Amen, that's good preaching right there. Somebody could quote that on Facebook and nobody would know what it meant. Like, what is he saying? Oh. But see, there's something that happens because envy makes life a competition, and it's a competition game. And, and if I'm losing at the competition, it makes it very difficult for me to have joy at the success of others. You know what I'm saying? I talk about, I, the, you know, for what I, I play uh, golf with CJ sometimes. And that dude beats me to death. <laughs> but, you know, I, I've come to a place where I've just learned to enjoy the beat down. And I, and I love playing with the man, and he's playing in my realm. Like, I, want, I want to be able to play as well as he does. But, you know, I, I come out and play really good. I think one time last year I shot like a 71 with him or something. He shot like a 64. What are you going to do with that? And, and, and I'm, but, but here's the thing, I've got to a point where I just celebrate. I'm like, man, I want to see this dude go low today. And here's the thing, love is in your heart when somebody comes in your lane doing what you're doing that you want to excel at, and they do it way better than you, and you can actually celebrate. That's what love is. When you can, they do it way better than you, and you can actually celebrate it. Man, because that stuff gets into your heart, and you start getting in a competition with all of that. And then there's, there's boasting, and, and you know, sometimes people will boast about how they are. They compare themselves to other people that are in their lane. And, 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 and sometimes what I've noticed about boasting is a lot of times Christian people don't come out and say how awesome they are, but their boasting shows up in this. It's how they speak about other people who are in their same lane. They may not say they're awesome, but when somebody else says this person is awesome, they say, well, I don't know about them. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're, you know, as a preacher... We bring this book in by John Mark, John Mark Comer, and everybody says, Oh, man, I love John Mark Comer. He's awesome. And I'm like, he ain't that great. <laughs> Why? He's in my lane. You know what I'm saying? He's writing books about spiritual things. I've not written a book. I'm just trying to be transparent this morning. You know what I'm saying? But when somebody gets in your lane... Envy can hit at the core of who you are because rather than celebrating what, what God is doing in somebody's life, all it does is expose what you're not doing, what you're not excelling at. And all of a sudden, they're getting a little bit of value, they're getting a little bit of praise, and you can't stand to hear them get that praise because that should be me. And nobody comes out and says this stuff, but you've got a little evil darkness on the inside of you that you know says that stuff. You know it. Don't you lie to me. You know it's down in there. There's a little envious idol seeker trying to elevate itself constantly, pushing itself up because envy is idol specific. If you win an award swimming, I don't care. I'll say, praise God, you won an award swimming. Why? Because I don't swim. <laughs> you win an award for pastor of the year? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm just being real. Somebody gets in your lane, it's idol specific, isn't it? It's when they do what you're doing. It's when they take the place of what you want. 
It can happen in some little thing. You know, that, that's why, you know, managing a worship team is so challenging. Because everybody, you know, when you put people in front of the stage and they, ooh, man, there's a, there's a, there, ooh, you can start to sense that, that, that place where I could get some applause. I could get a little gratification, a little glory to me. I mean, well, oh, yeah, all glory to God, but eh, I'll take a little bit of that this morning, Lord. <laughs> Y'all know it's real. Y'all know it's real. You start putting people in positions like that, it, it starts to defile the sacrifice, our motives are turned, and it starts to work in among all of us. And, and, and deep down, there's something in there, a sinister voice that says, you know what, I hope they lose that. And if they do lose it, I'll be happy. I don't want to see them do better than me. I don't want to see them have more than me. He says, it's, it, love does not envy, love celebrates, because we're on the same team in glorifying God. Thomas Watson said it like this, he said, a humble man is willing to have his name and gifts eclipsed so that God's glory may be increased. He's content to be outshone by others so that the crown of Christ may shine brighter. A humble Christian is content to be laid aside if God has other tools to work with which may bring him more glory. This is the humble man's motto. Let me decrease, let Christ increase. It is his desire that Christ should be exalted. And if this is affected, whoever is the instrument he rejoices. Amen. Man, and this is something that you got to pray about because this ain't something you're going to uproot on your own. you got to let God get in your heart and expose those things. But see, once we move on, he says again, number six, love is not arrogant or rude. So it's not just not envious, uh, but, but it's not arrogant and it's not rude. And arrogant really is just to have an exaggerated sense of one's own importance or, ability, uh, or abilities. And basically, uh, an arrogant attitude towards somebody is you just think you're right, and so I don't really care what you have to say because I know I'm right. And so I don't want to listen to you, and I don't want to have an ear open to your opinion because I'm right and you're wrong, honey, and you just need to be quiet. Anybody been in that shape before? Maybe you know somebody that is a little bit arrogant. And so when this happens, when this happens, you end up oftentimes being rude toward a person because you are arrogant, and this is offensively impolite or ill-mannered. And we basically start to see people as instruments that should be there to benefit us, our happiness, our success, our time. And if they don't, they're expendable and aggravating, and so we treat them as less than and we're rude to them and we have a bad attitude toward them. And we, we're, we're rude. Now, now, love looks at a person with such intrinsic value and worth that it says, how can I bless this person? How can I let them know that they're loved? How can I let them know that they're cared for? And you don't treat them rudely you know you're, you're out at a restaurant I don't know how many of you are but I know some people I, I sit down with them and they're just they're, they're just like very demanding of waiters and waitresses you know what I'm saying I'm like I can't I get embarrassed I put my head down I'm like, bless her heart you know what I'm saying but but here's the thing how do you how do you treat people just in your day-to-day -day walk and do you give them that undeserved kindness that they don't actually deserve. I think even sometimes when we talk about evangelism, rather than trying to reach people with the gospel and letting them know, hey, you're, you're of such value that I want to come and love on you and tell you about Jesus, rather you make them a project or a sinner that needs to be converted or fixed rather than a, a, a human being that has inherent value and worth that needs to know the love of Christ for them. Yeah. Number seven, love does not insist on its own way. And see, when we, as sinners in Adam, basically we live from an empty center 
And because we need fulfillment that we can only get in God, but we don't seek it in God, basically everything turns in on itself, and we start to demand our own way because we become the sinner. We've got to do it my way, how I want to do it, when I want to do it. It's my way or the highway because that self-centered, that empty sinner. But love is willing to yield. Love is even willing to be corrected. Let me tell you something that love is willing to do. Love is actually willing to forgive people even when they... Love is willing to ask a person to forgive you when they're in the wrong. You understand what I'm saying here? You're still waiting on that person. To, well, they got to do this first and then I, then, I, then I... No, no, no. You go to them and you ask them for forgiveness even if you think they're the ones that have done the wrong. Because you're willing to yield. You're willing to stand corrected. You're willing to look as if you were the one in the wrong for the sake of reconciliation and healing and love. It does not insist on its own way. People do not have to do what you want them to do. Matter of fact, I can promise you this. The world works in such a way that most of the time people will not do what you want them to do. But you can't insist on your own way if you're functioning from a place of love. Number eight, love is not irritable or resentful. And that word resentful, it actually, if you look at it in the Greek, it literally means they don't tally up wrongs. They don't reckon up wrongs. They keep no record of wrongs because that's what resentment is, isn't it? Resentment is somebody wrongs you, and rather than forgiving it, reconciling, and moving on, you start stacking up how many wrongs they've done. And you hold it somewhere down here in the deep recesses, and you say, I, oh, I'm good, I've forgiven them, but yet you've still stacked the wrongs. You know, sometimes me and Andre will get in a fight, you know, and then every now and then when we're at our worst, we pull out stuff that happened years ago. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, hold on. We pull out something that happened in 2010. We keep a record of wrongs. You've got to let that slate go, my friend. You've got to let the blood of Jesus wash over that and say, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. In order to promote the love of God in my relationship, in my marriage, in the church of Jesus Christ, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to wipe the slate clean. I'm not holding that against them anymore. I'm believing all things, enduring all things, hoping all things, and trusting that God will not only reconcile our relationships, but He'll transform who they are. And until He does, and even if He doesn't, I'm going to love them anyway. I'm going to love them anyway. Amen. This is what God wants to do in our hearts because we're to be a community of love. And, and, but instead, we often become irritable. And how often do little things happen that just cause us little inconveniences that make us irritable? When you have children, you get irritable. Anybody? I mean, I just got one. Some of y'all have them like four, five, six, seven. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, man, how do they do it, Lord? Because you can get irritable. Moses got angry and irritable and failed to enter the promised land. We're called to be a community of love. And I think in the church sometimes we can sit and argue and debate about the ambiguities of life. We're literally divided in thousands and thousands of denominations over little nitpicky stuff. And we look at the other side and say, well, we're right and they're wrong. That's demonic. A community that's religious gets its life from the rightness of their beliefs, the rightness of their behaviors, and they become hyper-vigilant about when people don't believe the way they believe or don't behave the way you think they ought to behave. Here's the thing. There's some people in this church, you probably don't behave the way that I would want you to behave. <laughs> but yeah, I'd say for a lot of people, there's some way that I don't behave necessarily the way that you want me to behave either. Some people get mad. Well, that boy's up there wearing jeans, preaching the Word of God. Got one laugh out of it. <laughs> but you can get in that, and an unhealthy religious community 
is always insisting on its own way. Now here's the thing, as, as, as a spiritual community, we're, we, we seek to expose darkness. We, speak to, we seek to correct by the word of God and lovingly invite people into a way of life. And sometimes there's even elements of church discipline. There's elements where we say, hey brother, we go to a brother in love and humility and say, hey, we, we can't live this way. This is not what Scripture's called us to do. We're, we're called to those things, but yet when we talk about as a whole, when people disagree and when people don't, we can't demand that we're the right way all the time. That's not how we live. We should not elevate the rightness of, of how we are or how we should behave. We should elevate us loving people as our main source of what we're doing and why we're doing it. People aren't always going to agree with us, and we'll lovingly try to lead, that, lead them into it. But our primary job is, is to point people to the source for trans transformation and not to police them all the time. Yeah. Now, again, I, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to get up here on some Sundays, and I'm going to preach the Word straight. I'm just going to do that because that's what God's called me to do. I'm going to preach it straight, and if you miss it, I'm going to still love you. And if you fail and we find out about it, you know what we're going to do as a church? We're going to still love you. And we're going to invite you lovingly back into relationship. And if you're willing to walk with us, we're willing to walk with you. Like that, That's an element of what we're doing. But our primary goal is to point people to the source that can transform them rather than po police people's behavior. And so Jesus invites you into this relationship. And if you come into it, we've got to understand that, that, that love always forgives. No matter what you've done, Jesus stands ready to forgive because of his blood on the cross. Number nine, the last one, love never fails. He finishes like this in verse 8. He says, Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And see, what he says is when I was a child, he's saying there, there's coming a time, the perfect which is to come is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says when he comes back, I can promise you this, there'll be no need for tongues, there'll be no need for prophecies, There'll be no need for miracles or healings. There will not even be a need for faith or hope. All of those things will be done away when Jesus shows up because he will restore and heal all things. But you know what one thing will remain throughout eternity? Love. He says all of these things, whether we, we, pro we prophesy in part, he said that's going to be done away. All of these things are going to be done, done away when the perfect has come. And we will see face to face and we will graduate from being children to being adults because in that moment when we see Jesus face to face, one of the things that I think we're see, going to see first that is burned away is all the times that we had an opportunity to truly love and chose a different direction and a different path. Where our motivations were not rooted and grounded in love. Where we didn't understand the love of God and we didn't act in the love of God. And we're going to see those things at judgment. But the better thing, the, mo the more beautiful thing, is that all of the obstacles to our love is going to be removed. And for the first time in our existence, we're actually going to be able to see everybody as God sees them and love with a full heart without envy, without boasting, without being rude or arrogant, but filled with the kindness and the love of God. And this is what He wants to do. He wants to know us even as we are fully loved and fully known and pour that love into our heart. And 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love 
Not that we love God, but God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I want you to bow your heads right where you're at. And I want you to start from that place of just how much that God loves you. Sometimes when we, when we read all of those things, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, if we're honest with ourselves, we see so many of those things in the depths of our heart. And we want to be better lovers, but we find it so difficult to move in that direction. But Jesus reminds you that in this is love. Not that we loved God or that we loved people, but we actually love because He first loved us. And He loved you and demonstrated in the fact that you were deserving of judgment and wrath, but He stood in the gap and He bore the punishment for your sin and He took your place and He absorbed all of that that you deserve so that you could receive the grace and the love of God. So in this moment right now, I want you to receive that grace. I want you to receive that love that God has for you. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you've not responded to the call of the Spirit on your life and responded to salvation, now's the time to do that. And so as a beginning point, I want, I want you to take a step of faith. If that's you, if you say, you know what, I want to give my life to Jesus. I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand. This doesn't save you, but it's a beginning point of faith. And as an act of faith, would you lift your hand and say, that's me. I want to begin to walk with Jesus. I want to be saved. I want to know that I have security of salvation in my life. Anybody, just raise your hand. I just want to pray for you. I'm not going to ask you to come up or anything like that. Anybody at all. I think I see one hand right there. Anybody else? Anybody else? I want to pray for that one that lifted their hands. I know God's done something in their heart. I know it's a difficult thing to even do that. But God, I pray for each person this morning that they would know your love. And for this one that raised their hand, Lord Jesus, I pray that he would know your salvation. And Lord Jesus, we come to you once again afresh and we just ask you, Lord Jesus, to forgive us of our sins. And we know that you do. We know that because of your blood, Jesus, we, are, we stand forgiven. And so we ask you to forgive us. And we just confess this morning that we believe in who you are. That you died for us on the cross and that you were raised again on the third day. And so we confess you as Lord of our lives right now in this moment. I want you to just do that. Say, Jesus, we just, we just make you Lord. And we ask, God, that you'd fill us with your spirit and pour your love into our hearts like never before so that we can obey the great commandment to love you, God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves, Lord. Let this work happen in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want you to stand to your feet. If you want to come forward for prayer, I think we have one or two baptisms so if you all want to get ready, you can come up here and hang out while we're, while we're praying. But let's take a moment here just to respond to the Lord. You can come around this altar and pray. Take a moment just to seek God. Maybe the Lord's putting somebody on your heart to pray for, to give a word to. If you need prayer for healing in your body, come forward. We'd love to pray with you. If you're just struggling with something in your mind and you want prayer, come forward. We'd love to pray with you. If you just want to take some time to pray at your seat, we just ask that you respond right here. Let's worship the Lord together. Let's take a moment to seek His face.